0: Happy Sabbath. It's good to see you all here um, at church. So can anybody remember what is the word for today? Unity. Unity. Can anybody remember what was the word for last week? Service. Service, right? And last week, Sage, where's Sage? Just put your hand up. Sage won last week. Congratulations, buddy. Let's give him a hand. Yeah. He won last week. So today the word is service, and I want... Um, Unity, unity. This week, or today's word is unity. So we're going to speak about unity. So I'm happy to be here this morning. I want to tell you a story that happened a few years ago. I was, um, before I start the story, my title of my sermon is called Far More Abundantly, but I've changed it, and it will make sense in the end, to Immeasurably More. So I want you to turn to somebody next to you and say, Immeasurably More. The sermon is about immeasurably more. So I want to tell you the story that happened a few years ago. A few years ago, I was living in London or in England. Um, close to London, and I was doing a reading for my master's degree. And the way that my master's was structured meant that I had a lot of kind of time to study by myself, a lot of self-research. And, and so that kind of gave me the opportunity to be able to travel and study anywhere. I could be in any country. As long as I had an internet connection, I could do the work that I needed to do. So I kind of traveled a bit around London or around Europe, And there was this one time that was in Norway for a few weeks, and I had spent a few weeks there, and it was on my way back, um, and I was sitting at the uh, bus station waiting for for the bus to take me to the airport. And at this moment, I was in Haugesund, which is a small little town in Norway. And how it happened was, in Norway, or in that specific town, there is two flights in the whole week that flies to London. It's the Tuesday and the Thursday. Two flights, so you either, if you miss it, you have to, if you're on the Tuesday, you miss it, you have to get it on, on Thursday, otherwise you have to wait. And so it was the Tuesday, I was in Norway for a few weeks, and I was waiting to go back to London, I was going to fly the Tuesday to fly from Norway to London, I was going to then go from London um, to where New College was, get my bags, and the Wednesday morning, I was going to fly back to South Africa for a few weeks of um, semester break, And so I was there, I'd been there in Norway, had a good time, and I'm kind of waiting for the bus, and the bus is a bit late, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and now I'm starting to worry, because I need to get this flight. If I miss this flight, I miss my South African flight, and everything's just going to go crazy. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, I hope the bus isn't late, I hope the bus isn't late. And and I'm thinking to myself, and praying, and I'm like, Lord, please, I cannot miss this flight. And I'm thinking, I'm worrying, and eventually I realize the bus isn't going to come. So I phoned a taxi service, which is insanely expensive in Norway, but I phoned them and I'm like, please, can you pick me up? So this guy comes after 20 minutes. I get in the car. Now I know that I'm going to, if he doesn't drive fast, if I'm going to miss my flight. So I said to him, please, So I know that there's heavy fines in, in Norway if you speed, but I'm going to miss my flight. Can you please, in your heart, find some grace and just drive? And he said, okay, Great. And so he's just driving to the airport. It's about 30 minutes drive. He's driving, driving, driving. I get there. Luckily, I see I've got 10 minutes before the, the fi- flight starts to board. I said to him, thanks. He's like, okay, well, can you pay? I'm like, yeah, here's my card. I swipe in and put my pin in, get my bags, run into the airport, get, get the stuff done. Get, and as I sit on the flight, I'm like, oh, finally. I've made it. All my stress is gone for the day. So I take the flight, get to London to Stansted Airport, get on the bus on the way to Waterloo Station where I should get a train. And I get there, everything's fine, everything's good. I've made the flight. And I walk to get a ticket for the bus, uh, for, the, for the train. And I put my, the card that I just used 20 minutes ago, which I haven't used in a few weeks while I was in London, uh, in, in, in Norway. I put that card in buy and it says, pin card, not uh, invalid. So I thought, Come on, that can't be how is that even possible? I just used this card. Now, I haven't used it for a few weeks. I couldn't really remember my PIN code, so I kind of just guessed when I had to pay in Norway, but I just used this. So I put it in again, PIN card invalid. So luckily, I had a few euros, so I go and I exchange the euros for pounds, and I pay, and I'm kind of frustrated. Now, my PIN is blocked, blocked, and I can't understand what's going on here, and eventually, I get to my uh, dorm room, and I open my uh, drawer and I see where all my bank um, documents are. And I look there and I look at the PIN, car, the pin number because now I'm, I'm very sure I know what my PIN is. And I check there and I see that my PIN is completely different than what I typed in, in Norway. I don't know how I paid for that, I don't know how it went through, but I was praying and I said, God, Lord, I cannot miss this flight. And for some reason, the the car just went through, because otherwise, if I had to now explain to the guy, my pin doesn't work, and all of these things, I would have missed my flight. But somehow, in God's grace, He just moved the process along so that I could get on my flight. Now, personally, I have seen this over and over and over again, where I pray for something, and it's the impossible happens. Has that happened to you in your life? When you pray for something, and there's no way. I can tell stories upon stories how God has done the impossible. And there's deep power in prayer. Sometimes we don't understand that it works, but we know that it works. Amen? And I think one person that really knew this as well was the Apostle Paul. He knew that prayer was the, the profound thing that was the mover and shaker in the world. Ellen White actually has this quote where she says that prayer is the work. That's where we derive our power from. And that's why Paul can say certain things like this in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Whatever you do, don't stop praying because it's from this prayer that we derive our power and existence. Romans chapter 12, he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. In Ephesians, he says the same thing, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So Paul was a man of prayer. He knew that when he prays, stuff happens. And so today, I want to look at a prayer of Paul that that I think has deep bearing on our lives, something that can really... um, uh, means something for us. That's applicable for, to, for today. So Paul would have agreed with Walter Mueller where he said, prayer is not merely an occasional impulse to which we respond when we are in trouble. No, Paul understood that prayer is a life attitude, something that you lean into. So I want to look at this prayer of Paul found in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 to 21. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Ephesians chapter three, sorry, verse 14. And just to kind of give a bit of context what's going on here, Paul, uh, the uh, letter of Ephesians is a, a letter that has no discernible problem there. F- um, Ephesus, the church of Ephesus was a, a port city and it was one of the biggest religious um, cities in, in Asia Minor at that time. So there were tons of people there worshiping tons of different gods and they would be constantly having people coming in and out. So the, the church of Ephesus would be a very cosmopolitan, multicultural church. And there were Gentiles and there were Jews and there were lots of stuff going on. So Paul is writing from Rome. He's a prisoner in Rome. And so he's writing this letter to the Ephesians and he's trying to exhort them and encourage them. So he writes this. And this book has two discernible parts. The first one is kind of the belief section and the second one is the behavior section, the kind of theological um, exhortation and then the kind of ethical implication of of what he's saying. So he starts off the first letter, uh, the first part of the letter, Ephesians chapter 1 verse, uh, sorry, let me just go back here, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, and he's basically showing the identity of and the benefits for those who are in Christ. So he's explaining that there were some, these Gentiles, that were not part of the covenantal family of God. The Jews were, but they weren't. But now because of what Jesus has done, he has brought these two together, and they are now one family. He's trying to identify who they are. And then in the second half, the ethical part of it, very practical part, he speaks of the responsibilities of those who find their identity in Jesus. So in practical sense, he's trying to explain to them the unity that should be in the church He explains it theoretically and theologically in the beginning, and then he explains of how that would look like practically in the church, and the prayer that we're going to look at is basically the the bridge that brings these two together, and we know this to be true, don't we? We've all spoken about unity in local congregations, in our conferences, in the world church. We speak about unity all the time, but you can speak about unity as much as you want. That doesn't mean you're going to get unity. I think that in one sense, the church is an impossibility. It's impossible to have church without prayer and without God. Because how is it that we as different individuals would come together and worship in the same way and think about certain things in the same way? How is it that we'll have this unity? If you think about now, at the currently in the world, there's about 34,000 different denominations, Christian denominations. That's a ton of different denominations. But when you look at the Bible, you'll see that we have about 40 authors that wrote in a span of 1,500 years about the same thing, God, and there was unity. But we can't have that same unity in Christianity. And somehow we, we might argue, yeah, well, it's because, you know, people aren't reading the Bible the way that we are reading and, you know, because they are kind of off the track. But in somehow there should be more unity even within Adventism. We all read the same Bible. We all believe certain things that are very similar. We believe in Ellen White as a prophet. But even in the Adventist church, we struggle with unity. We have disunity between conservatives and liberals, and those labels aren't even useful. We have struggles between the south and the north, between people that don't see things like us. and So this letter to this church is very close to home, in a sense, to us. The more we look into the world, the more we see plurality abounding, and we see very little unity. We see a lot of disunity in the church, people splintering off in their own divisions. But Paul is writing to this, and he's saying that, I will pray for the church. And he starts his letter off with this, one, with this verse. Let me just get it here. He says, for this reason. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever started a prayer with this word, for this reason? No, we haven't, right? So when you read it, you will realize that he actually started the prayer in Ephesians chapter three already, and then he kind of gets sidetracked on what this reason is, and he's explaining his his kind of... Um, work within the Gentile church. So if we want to know what is the reason that he's praying, we have to actually go to the chapter just before that. Chapter chapter 2 explains that, where he says in Ephesians chapter 2, this click is a bit slow, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, speaking to the Gentiles, you were once far away, have been brought near to the blood of Christ, through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, So he's saying there was disunity, there was a wall of hostility, there was stuff that separated you, but now because of Jesus, he brings it closer. He goes on in verse 19, he says, you are no longer foreigners or aliens. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're in Jesus, you are not a foreigner anymore, you're not an alien anymore, but you are fellow citizens. But Look at what he says here. You are fellow citizens of God's people. You're part of his kingdom. But then he goes on and he says, and you are members of what? Of God's household. And then he says, for this reason, then he starts his prayer. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. He says, because I know of this reality in Jesus, I knew that the reality before Jesus is that there was a a wall of hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews, between the covenantal people of God and the non-covenantal people. And he says, but because of Jesus, he had brought everybody together, and that is the reason that I now kneel before the Father, not just kneel before God, but I kneel before the Father. Right That preposition uh, before gives this idea of intimacy in the in the Jewish way of thinking. they would never really kneel most of the time their posture of prayer would to be to be, to stand, but he's given this I- idea of urgency and intimacy. He kneels before the father there's a story of a man who was extremely ill and he was on his deathbed and he didn't have any family except one daughter and and the daughter found the pastor to come do a a, a visit to his uh, to, to her father. And so the pastor went to visit and he got there and the dad was lying in, uh, on the bed and there was a chair drawn close to the bed. And so the pastor came in and greeted the man and said, oh, I've seen that you've already had a visitor here. And he says, no pastor, nobody's come to visit except my daughter. And so the pastor's like, oh, so she, is this the chair that she sat in? He's like, no. Um, a few years ago, I struggled to pray. I struggled to connect with God. And a pastor at that time gave me the advice that I must speak to God as if he is here with me. And I should do it in a way that I must pull up a chair and in my mind think that Jesus is sitting in this chair and converse with him as you converse with a friend. And so while I'm lying here in, in, in this room, I am, I'm struggling and, and there's nobody to talk to. I've asked the nurses to pull the chair up so that I can talk to God as if he's sitting with me. Because I know that he hears my prayers. Pastor thought that was a beautiful sentiment, spoke to the man, had a prayer with him, and left. A few days later, the pastor received a phone call from uh, the daughter that had just told him that the father had passed away, and so he gave his condolences, and, and then his, the, the daughter says, well, oh, there's something I actually want to ask you, pastor. There's something that was very odd when my father died. I was there with him um, right before that, and I had to leave to take a phone call, but when I came back, I saw my father had climbed off of his bed, and he had crawled towards the chair, and he had put his head on the chair, and I don't know what that means. And the pastor said, I knew exactly what that means. The father father was getting closer to Jesus. He was drawing closer to Jesus. He was putting his head metaphorically on Jesus' lap. That kind of intimacy, that's what that man understood, and that's what Paul is trying to get here. When he kneels before the father, it's this idea of intimacy. But then he says, I kneel before the father from whom this whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. In the Greek, it's very interesting that he plays on specific words. The word for, for father is pater or patera, and then he uses this idea of whole family, pasa patria. So he's playing on these words, and he's moving to this idea that when we come as Christians, when we pray, we are not praying to God. We're praying to our Father, to Abba. And so in saying, the whole family of heaven, uh, the whole family of earth, everybody that calls Jesus their Savior is now a part of this family. Can you see how he's already bringing in this idea of unity? Let me pause you and ask you a question. Do you believe that what Jesus did on the cross, his literal shedding of his blood and dying on the cross, literally forgave you for all your sins, from all your sins? Do you really believe that? Okay, can I see their hands? Who believes that Jesus dying? We all believe that. Right? So the reality of Jesus on the cross dying and resurrecting for us, that true reality is, is conferred to the true reality that our sins are forgiven. Now, the flip side of that coin is also true. Because Jesus has died and resurrected, and we are now in Jesus, the true reality is, is that we, sitting here, we are brothers and sisters. Not just the beautiful saying like, oh, that's okay, brother. Oh, that's okay, sister. No, 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 we are saved because of the blood of Jesus, and now we are brothers and sisters because of the blood of, blood of Jesus. It's not just a spiritual thing, we are now brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And, and that's what he's getting towards, he's saying, we, I, I knew before the Father, and now this kind of unity comes out I'm, uh, for the whole family in heaven and on earth to rise its name. For through him we both have access, this is Ephesians kind of building on that, for we both have access from the Father by one spirit. You are no longer foreigners or aliens, fellow citizens, he's kind of, kind of reminding us of this reality. And because he knows us, because he's praying towards the Father, he knows of the love of Jesus, he knows of the, the care of the Father, he's praying, and I can just imagine in Paul's mind, he's praying about the unity, he's praying about all these things, and then he says, he moves on, he says, I wish that Christ will dwell in us. And then he moves on, he says, I wish that Christ will dwell in us so that we can comprehend his love in order that we might be filled and displayed through us, that love. And that's the kind of progression of this, of this um, prayer. So let Christ may dwell in us. He keeps on praying, and he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts Through faith. So the first step, the first thing that Paul is praying, because he is there on his knees praying before the Father, he's going through the church, he's thinking of Ephesus, he's thinking of this wall of hostility that has been broken now, he's thinking of the unity of the brothers and sisters, and he's saying, I pray that this Jesus will come and He will live in you. I will pray to the Father, see the work of Trinity. I will pray to the Father so that He will give you the strength of the Spirit so that Christ can work in you. Isn't that beautiful? Now, last week in Philippians, I spoke about this idea that Jesus relegates power, relegates honor, relegates his status, and where the, the sentiment of the Antichrist is to keep it for himself. One phrase that we could use is that the, the sentiment of the devil is the love of power. Are you with me? The love of power, and that's what we see in the world. If you want status and honor, all of these things, you have a love for power. But what we see in this this, uh, prayer is that we see the power of love. And that's what He wants us to realize. He wants us to see this. He doesn't want us to clamor for the love of power. He wants the, the power of love to be transfused into us, into every ember of our bodies. So He says, I pray that out of His glorious riches, there's so much there, I pray that out of His glorious riches that He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, in your inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he goes on that that we can comprehend that love. He says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power, once again the power, together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. When you grammatically go through this prayer, you will see that there are four infinitive clauses and one participle clause. And if you start putting them together, you'll see a chiastic structure emerging there that is bound around this idea of being rooted and established in love. That's the core of the prayer. That's what Paul is praying for. He's saying, I pray that you're being rooted and established. He's using certain metaphors there, agricultural and um, botanical metaphors. That's saying, I wish that your foundations will be deep and strong in Jesus' love. And I pray that it will grow out and have fruit and move towards other people. So he's praying that we will be rooted and established in that love and that we have power with all the saints to grasp. And then he uses kind of paradoxical language. He says, I pray that they will grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. And then paradoxically, he throws this in to know the love that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that goes beyond knowledge? Isn't that the mystery of Christianity? Anna White writes this, how we can know about the love of God. She says, the Father loves us. Remember, this is a prayer of unity and uh, trinity, this idea that he's praying to the Father to give the Spirit so that Christ can dwell in us. He says, I, the Father loves us not because of the great propitiation paid, but he provided the propitiation because he loves us. So God doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. No, 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 he loved us, and therefore he gave Jesus. Christ was the medium which he could pour out in his infinite love upon the fallen world. So Jesus was the medium that the Trinity could pour out their love towards us. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God suffered with his son in the agony of Gethsemane, in the death of Calvary, the heart of infinite love paid the price of our redemption. How can we know how much God loves us? Well, just look at the cross. Just look how Jesus, the son of God, would come down to this earth to die for my sin and your sin. Even if you were the only sinner in the world, he would come and die for you. He would sacrifice it. That's an immeasurable love that he gives towards us. And so Paul says, I am praying to the Father so that they would have the, the Spirit's power, so that they can start comprehending the, the, the dimensions of the love of God. Even if it transcends their thinking, even if it's transrational, in some way they are something, the cross, that can show us the love of Jesus. And I can see Paul kind of going on and he's moving towards this idea that that if we understand these limits of God's love or the, the, the love that has no limits, we will be filled by it and that that love would be displayed through us. The Bible commentary puts it this way. It says, the glorious consummation to the work of the indwelling in the life, this filling up of the love of Jesus in us, the church like a vessel is to be filled to the brim with heavenly grace. So that the individual members composing the body of Christ exhibit or reflect something of the fullness of God. Now I want to use an illustration here. When I was younger, let me just get this, this uh, glass here. When I was younger, probably I can't remember, like five years old, six years old, I started to learn to make coffee and tea and all of these things. Can you remember when you started to make these when you were a kid? Vegetarian coffee, obviously, we were Adventists. Um, so I learned to do these things. And I, I always said that if I make something in the mornings, my parents, my dad would used to drink coffee in the morning. So I would go in the morning and I would put the kettle on and you know, learn how to do these things. And I would go in the mornings. Now, I don't have a coffee jug here. Yeah, I'm just going to use this. I would, I would fill it up and I would fill it up. And I would thought, you know, I want to give that best to my dad. I want to give him the best that I have. And so I would fill it up to the brim. Now, you can imagine, right? You can imagine as a small six-year-old, five-year-old, walking, we had this long passage in our house, and you can imagine as a small little kid, what do you do do when a small little kid walks with with something that's filled to the brim, right? If you walk to, yeah, you're going to spill, right? So as you're walking, you can just see just, if it's full to the brim, eventually you're going to spill out. That's what Paul is referring to here. That's the conclusion of his prayer. He's saying, I'm praying to the church in Ephesus that has so many different people and so many different uh, views, similar to the church that we live in today. And he says, I'm praying that they would just understand that they are one family and not separated. That they would move from this position that they are one, not many that they would move from this position that they are part of the family of God the Father. And then I pray that they will be strengthened with the Almighty Himself, the Spirit of God would descend upon them, that they will be permeated and pervaded by the love of Jesus, that it would take such a strong hold on their hearts that that they will be rooted and established in His love, and that that love would take up all of the place in their hearts so that they would be filled to such a great measure, that they would be filled up, filled up to the brim so that when they walk around and somebody hits them, they just spill out love. Can you imagine a church like that? When somebody comes to you, you just spill out love to people. When somebody says something negative to you, you just spill out love to them. Right? When somebody comes, you just spill out love to them because you're so filled up with the love of Jesus. That's, what Paul, that's what's going to bring unity in this local church, in the, in the global church, in every aspect. That's the work of the Trinity brings unity. Now, we can ask ourselves, but how do we get that practically? How do we get that? I want to talk, tell you a story about these two um, individuals that are just beaming with smiles, Friedrich and Friedrich von Borlswing. You can say that very quickly a few times. Um, so this is a, a, a father and a son, and you can see they're very happy about the picture there. Um, so, so, Father and Son, they, they uh, lived um, in the late, latter part of the 1800s, and they started, uh, and the, the foundation still exists today, the Bethel Foundation. They started the Bethel Foundation, which is now considered as one of the biggest um, hospital chains in, in, in Central uh, Europe, and they have about 14 different church, um, hospitals and orphanages and stuff that specifically cater to the disabled physically or mentally disabled. And they started this, this um, ministry, in a sense, because of the love of Jesus that they had in them. They said, how can we not help? How can we not do something about the love of Jesus that's in us? And the, so they started this. And, and you might have never heard of Friedrich von Bordelschwing and his son, Friedrich von Bordelschwing, but um, you might have heard of somebody that was very close to them, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which was also a German theologian. And um, in the book by um, Eric Metaxas, a biography of Bonhoeffer. He writes about Bonhoeffer moving towards and uh, uh, seeing what these men are doing. Now, just to give context, if you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer or you don't know any of this, this was when, when Germany started to give power more and more to the Nazis, before World War I or World War Two. So, before this time, um, the German occupation was becoming stronger and stronger and stronger, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the biggest theologians that, that um, was against Hitler and what they were doing. He said that they were... De- definitively anti-Christian. And so he started a church, the Confessing Church, but was fighting against it. And so he's writing from this kind of perspective. And he says, Bethel began in 1867 as a Christian community for people with epilepsy, but in the 1900s, including several facilities that cared for 1,600 physically and mentally disabled people. Frederick Jr. took it over at his father's death in 1910, and by the 1930s, it was a whole town with schools and churches and farms and factories and shops and housing for patients, nurses and caregivers. So these people, I must just emphasize this, they did this because of the love of Jesus in them, not because they were good. They were doing this because of the love of Jesus in them. At the center were numerous hospitals and care facilities, including orphanages. Bonhoeffer saw that Bethel as was um, as the antithesis of the Nazi worldview that exalted power and strength. It was the gospel made visible, a fairy tale landscape of grace, where the physically and the mentally disabled were cared for in a palpably Christian atmosphere. So, in one sense, this was the church. This was the church that was showing the love of Jesus, that was spilling the love of Jesus to other people. And I like the word that he uses there, that he made the gospel visible, a fairy tale landscape of grace. Anna White uses very similar language when she speaks about the church. She says, the church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service, and its mission is to carry the gospel to the whole world. From the beginning, um, it has been God's plan that throughout his church shall be reflected the world, the fullness, his fullness and his sufficiency. So God always had this idea that he wants the church. He wants the kings of church. He wants all of you to display his fullness, his sufficiency, his love. She goes on. She says, the members of the church, those whom he called out of darkness, that's all of us, into his marvelous light are to show forth his glory. Let me click this thing. Does this click work? There we go. The church is the repository of the riches of the grace of Christ. That's what what Paul was praying for. I'm praying that they would be filled with the riches of your glory. And through the church will eventually be made manifest, even to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places, the final and full display of the love of God. So she's saying that if people look at the church, they should see the love of Jesus. When they look at the church, they should see the, the love of Jesus manifested between its members, right? She goes on. She says, the church is God's fortress in a city of refuge, which he holds in a revolted world. It reminds me of this, uh, uh, this thing that was happening in Germany. This was a fairy tale place. People couldn't believe it. How is this possible? Here we have Nazi Germany becoming stronger and stronger, and they have this love for power. But here's this, this gathering of people that are moved by the power of love right? In this world that has gone crazy to move up in the world, no, 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 here we come and we serve. She goes on, she says, during the ages of spiritual darkness, the church of God has had a city set on a hill. From the age to age, through successive generations, the pure doctrines of heaven have been unfolding within its borders. Enfeebled and defective as it may appear, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense His supreme regard. It is the theater. Of His grace, and what do you do with a theater? Is a theater just a place that you know about, or is a theater a place that you go to see something being displayed? She says, She says that the church is a theater of His grace in which He delights to reveal His power to transform hearts. So, the church is impossible in the sense that we cannot be unified in and of ourselves. We come together and we we might plan and try and do God's work, but that will never work. We will never be unified without Jesus because he is the one that unifies us. He is the one that changes us. He is the one that brings us together and helps us to spill love to other people. He is the one that makes this church, this building, these people, the theater of his grace. I want to ask you this. Kingscliff community can they say that this church is a theater of grace? Your family, the church, that you, the work that you go to, the school that you go to, your extended family, can they say that you are part of the theater of God's grace? They can see this love of Jesus pulled out and shown out to other people. I don't know about you, but it seems sometimes if I look at my own life as an impossibility, right? I know that I'm not a theater of God's grace all the time. I know that I say stuff and do stuff, then I'm like, man, I, do, I shouldn't do these things. I shouldn't say these things. I, I'm not displaying the love of Jesus. When we look at the church or look at our own lives and we look at this idea of unity and the, the love of Jesus and the fears of grace, we look at these things and we say, God, that's impossible. There's no way that you can do this. And that's why I love the way that he ends this verse. I didn't have it in the slide, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians, the last chapter Ephesians. He ends this this. Um, this Pray with a beautiful doxology, Ephesians chapter 3, and he says there, I'm going to read from verse 19, and to, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, so that you can have this, and we can say, but this is, this is insane, we would never be able to be filled to that kind of fullness, and then he says this, he says, now to him, to Jesus who is able to do far more abundantly. The one translation says that he will do it immeasurably more. You cannot even measure it. He will do immeasurably more than than we can even ask or think, or ask or imagine, says one translation. Can you imagine that? That when we look at our church, when we look at our conference, when we look at our denomination, when we look at our own lives, we say this unity is impossible. Being a theater of grace is impossible. We're all sinners and we cannot do it. Exactly right, you can't. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the work of the Trinity in our lives, right? Because it gets to this, now to him who is able to do do far more abundantly than we can even ask or think according to his power at work in us. It's not because we are good. It's because he is good in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of the theater of grace. I want to be a participant in the theater. I want to be an actor in this theater of grace that is transformed by His grace, that is filled by His love, so that when I walk around, I am just spilling out love wherever I go. When people say something to me, I'm just spilling out love wherever I go. When people know me, the first thing that they know about me is that I am a person of love. I am a Christ. I'm a Christian like my Christ. Do you have that same desire in your heart? Do you have a desire to be personally transformed, to be filled up to such a high degree of divine fullness? Do you have that desire? If you have that desire, I'm going to ask you to, to, to stand and make that commitment to pray to God, to say, God, I want this. So if you have that desire, I'm going to ask you to, to stand and, and say to Jesus, Lord, I want to make that commitment to you. I want to, to, to be filled with your grace. And then I'm going to ask another thing. If you want to be a part of the theater of grace, of this church, I want you to commit to pray five minutes a day this prayer of Paul, to pray that you would be filled with divine fullness, that you would be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can live in you, so that you can understand the height and the depth and the width of God's love, so that you would be filled. But it is not something that we just commit to now, because we're all standing we say we want that, but we have to pray for that. We have to ask for that. So I'm going to pray now, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand during the prayer that when you commit yourselves to pray just for five minutes a day, this prayer of Paul, that you would be filled with this divine fullness. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you. And Lord, this is such a beautiful prayer about unity and and, and love and glory that should be just for you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives, in my life, Lord, that I would become a theater of grace. Lord, I pray for the Kingscliff Church and every individual that is here, Lord. We we all stand up and we say, Lord, we want this in our lives. We want to be filled with divine fullness. We want the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and to, to be established and rooted in your love. Lord, we know we can't do it by ourselves. We know that in ourselves we are desperately wicked. We know that in ourselves, we are bent towards sin. We have this proclivity towards sin. But Lord, we pray that you will sanctify us. We pray that you will change us and lead us to true biblical perfection. Lord, I pray that you would change all of us. And we commit, Lord, that we would pray every day, that we would be like Paul, Lord, that we would would not stop praying, that we will not cease praying, and that we commit ourselves to pray five, five minutes a day this prayer in our lives. That we will be changed and transformed into your glory is my prayer in your holy name. Amen.